Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, Lil. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BDW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. This is the Copyright 2.0 Show. My name is Jonathan Bailey, and I am not an attorney, but I am a copyright blogger at Plagiarism Today, which can be found at PlagiarismToday.com. My name is Evan Sherris, and I am an attorney. The opinions I express, however, are intended to be general commentary and are not legal advice. No attorney-client relationship is formed, nor should any such relationship be implied. If you require legal advice, please consult with an attorney licensed to practice in your jurisdiction. And hello, everyone, and welcome to the Copyright 2.0 Show. My name is Jonathan Bailey, and I am from the website Plagiarism Today, which can be found at PlagiarismToday.com, and also username Plagiarism Today on Twitter, Facebook, and all the things. And joining me as usual, a lawyer who is not here to provide legal advice, as I'm sure he'll remind you in just one second, the wonderful attorney, Evan Sherez. Evan, how are you doing? I'm doing all right, John. Yes, as always, I'm here to remind you that nothing I say can be or should be construed as legal advice. Don't I'm be doing stupid. Well, uh, although I do, I do not recall giving that disclosure last week. So uh, we have it in the intro. So <laughs> hopefully, everyone, um, most people listen to the uh, recording, so it should be okay. We have it in the intro. So I think we're fine. This is repetition here. This is repetition. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but yeah, Evan, how have you been? What you been up to? Uh, not too much. Um, uh, my company's preparing for a uh, big show in Vegas, so uh, I was uh, helping out with that. And um, I've been in just you know dying of heat here in the District of Columbia since uh, it's been uh, in the high 90s, and the humidity brings it up to the hundreds. And uh, preparing for my sister's arrival, she'll be uh, staying with me for a few days. We're going to uh, do the touristy stuff here in uh, in the District of Columbia. How about you? Yeah, How have you a- been? Yeah. Because you and I both live in touristy towns. I'm in New Orleans. You're in D.C. And that's the thing. Whenever someone comes and stays with you, you got to do all the touristy stuff. And as a local, on one hand, it's like, oh, I don't want to. But on the other hand, you're kind of excited to have an excuse to go do it all. You know? Exactly. Yeah. As a local, you just no one wants to do the touristy stuff with you, and you still haven't done it. So that's the best part about having someone come and visit, there especially you someone you enjoy spending more than a few hours time with, because you know, in all likelihood, you're going to end up waiting some lines um oh, yeah. you get to go and then do all the touristy stuff so you know there's this museum here in the in the district that they filled with um like a, just hundreds of those balls they like they usually have in like a mcdonald's ball pit yeah and um uh sorry my phone was ringing uh, and uh we're gonna do that it's like a, it's apparently a, a big attraction and uh, we're gonna do um the monuments etc and uh, Smithsonian, maybe at least swing by. You know, what are some of the touristy uh, things in uh, New Orleans that you haven't had the chance to uh, do that you would like there, to? A lot of restaurants I haven't been able to make my way to. I don't think I've eaten at like Commander's Palace. I have not eaten at Emeralds. Um, supposedly, you know, those are touristy places to go. It just hasn't come up. You know, I've done, the French Quarter thing, we're kind of unique in that the French Quarter is, like, the tourist area, but it's also actually a place locals go to, too. It's just different sections of it. So I'm used to spending a lot of time in the French Quarter for various things. But, yeah, there's uh, significant portions of the city that I either have not explored in many, many moons or I have not um, done recently. Okay. So, not done at all, rather. So... Cool, so um, why don't you tell uh, our users, our listeners, uh, what uh, we'll be talking about today. Yeah, we've got a a lot of interesting stuff this week. We missed a little time. I was traveling. This time it's my fault. It's all on me. Um, I was actually at a water park and a theme park, so you can totally blame me. Um, For 
for a little time. But yeah, we're talking about we have a little bit update on an MPAA lawsuit that is going down as we speak. We have a pair of updates about Oracle, one in their case against Google and one in their case against a company called Remini Street. Uh, Film On scores a very unexpected win, I guess is the way to put it. No one really saw this one coming. Um, t- uh, a scandal at Twitter as Twitter deletes mm-hmm. jokes after a proper copyright notice. It, you're going to hear about it in a minute. Um, we also have Billy Corgan, Billy Corgan in the news. Uh, Smashing Pumpkins just played here, actually. Um, also, we have an update on the uh, Kim.com story in New Zealand. And finally, once again, ripping CDs and movies for personal use is illegal in the UK. We'll have an update on that and how all that came about. The um, no-take-backs rule not applying to the UK, apparently. So, yeah, a lot of stuff to go through. You want to start plowing our way through it? Let's do it. Well, you know, the first story this week is looking at the MPA, or specifically the uh, major movie studios, have filed a lawsuit against the MovieTube websites. Now, apparently, and this was some all kind of news to me, MovieTube is apparently like a conglomerate of websites that specialize in illegal streams of movies. And apparently it's like two dozen of them. I was unaware of this. I, I'd heard of MovieTube, but I didn't realize it was so many sites. Yeah, there's about um, 30 of them all using yeah. different uh, different domain names. I guess they were hoping that uh, uh, they were they were just diversifying. You know, I think yeah. some companies will uh, you know open 20 different salons all with different names, so that if you don't like one, you go to their competitor. Maybe they were just trying to uh, get all the uh, to the pirates of traffic. Yeah, well, it didn't work. They're all down now. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, outcome was the same for all of them. No matter what flavor of movie tube you like, you're pretty much equally screwed right now. Is the moral of the story? But yeah, they they filed a lawsuit, and basically it was a mammoth lawsuit. But they but interestingly, as you might expect, they don't know who is operating these sites. These were John Doe lawsuits, where they're basically they're saying, look, we don't know who this person is. We're suing them, and we're hoping through the course of this litigation and discovery that we will obtain the identity mm-hmm. so we can sue them directly. Right. Most uh, domain registrations, um, well, all domain registrations require information about the registrant who owns yeah. it. And uh, in this case, we just had, uh, you know, fake, uh, fake information, information yeah. given. So, the you know, the real identity uh, of the owners is currently and, unknown, you know, hidden through all kinds of, um, uh, I guess, uh, fancy tech mechanisms that neither you and I quite understand. You know, um, probably the kind of stuff you know you see in the movies all the time. Oh, they're hiding their IP address, and uh, you know, but I'm right I, a gooey I, and visual basic, dude. Yeah. Uh, so yeah. that actually is happening, and um, yeah. Well, and, uh, and and the idea is through this litigation, you can get subpoenas, and then you can go after you know various providers and get information that way that maybe they were trying to keep hidden, but could not from other parties. Right, and. Um, you also just go for the uh, uh, the domain names. You take mm-hmm. them all over, uh, and hopefully that you know does enough damage so that the uh, the individuals behind it have to start all over and regain popularity, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And the, the game of whack a mole will continue, or uh, you know maybe they can find their way to the identities of these individuals, but uh, you know that remains to be seen. That seems unlikely, given the fact that these sites have openly touted that they are outside the U.S. So. It seems unlikely that would happen, but like you said, they also were targeting third parties, hoping to get injunctions against third parties that were in some way doing business with or interacting with these sites mm-hmm. to get them to cease doing said business, and that include domain registrars, advertisers, social networking companies, etc. Basically, anyone in the U.S. that is obviously without, you know, deliber- not deliberately, but is somehow aiding this site to prevent them from doing so. Well, so, I think it raises a couple of interesting uh, jurisdictional questions. You know, yeah. uh, you know, obviously they're not party to the current action, so uh, I'd be in, I'm interested to see how how, uh, how they plan to go about this. Um, I think the only uh, interesting uh, part about this case, or maybe as a, from a legal perspective, is the whole issue of personal jurisdiction when it comes to unknown uh, defendants. Um, but you know, uh, that's kind of solved here because they're really only looking for, uh, you know, jurisdiction over the actual, uh, uh, 
the, the company that I guess is running these, these websites. Mm-hmm. And because, you know, they're regularly and systematically um, interacting with individuals in the state of New York, that shouldn't really be a problem. Um, but once we figure out who these people are, I, 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 if that does happen, I think the jurisdictional issues will be very you know, interesting. Yeah, and, and that raises the question. Like I said, all these sites are down. They went down way before any injunction could be approved or disapproved or whatever. So they took the sites down seemingly voluntarily for whatever reason. So now the question raises how much further is this litigation really going to go, you know? Because these companies, for example, that were aiding and abetting are no longer doing anything to aid these sites. These sites are gone. I think you're probably just going to see a default judgment because obviously these people are exactly. not interested in, uh, yeah. in defending or or, make, or or even trying to fight the uh, piracy uh, allegations. I mean, as you said, they've admitted to piracy blatantly on, on I think, their Facebook page. They said, well, yeah, we're, we're, uh, we're stealing it and we just don't think that... You have the right to uh, get us, or the ability to get us, since we're overseas. And, and then so, the first uh, salvo gets fired in any kind of litigation, and they fold like a deck of cards. Basically, exactly. is what happens. It's easy to stand. It's like the old saying: everyone's got a plan until they get punched. You know. <laughs> and I think that's exactly what happened here. Their their plan fell apart pretty quickly. And so, yeah, it was a much more interesting story when I put it in the show notes, and we had a lot of hypothetical stuff to talk about, but that's life sometimes. So you want to shift gears to Oracle? Sure. Um, so yeah, Oracle, this is a, a, a fascinating one. We, we've seen this case go up and down up and down the legal ladder, if you will, from the district court all the way to the Supreme Court, and now back down again. It's the weirdest game of legal shoots and ladders you can play. Uh, it's um, a lot a lot more common than you might think. A lot. Yeah, I'm pretty sure it is. I'm actually very sure of that, but it's... Long and short of it is, Oracle accuses Google of violating copyrights and patents related to Java. Oracle owns Java. Google sort of did their Java clone thing in the Android operating system. Oracle said you can't do that. The lower court said, well, you know, the APIs that Google did use can't be copyrighted. Sorry, you know, your copyright claims are kind of thrown aside for the most part, pretty much exclusively. Oracle appealed, won on appeal, Google appealed to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court, being you know the job everybody wants, said, nah, I don't feel like working on that one. <laughs> and declined to hear the case, letting the appellate court ruling stand. So now we kick it back to the um, district court. But you know, that was five years ago Oracle filed that action. And you know, a lot changes in tech world in five years, as Absolutely. Oracle is now pointing out. And now that the uh, copyrightability issue uh, is settled for now... Uh, the case can move forward because, uh, you know, it's not the end of the case. Now that there is copyrightability, we have to still, you know, figure out whether there, there could be a fair use issue, there could be uh, more defenses, there could be a lack of substantial similarity, although I don't think that's yeah. the case. I'm pretty sure yeah, they that's an important uh, point. Oracle uh, is not just riding the damages train now. They have a, they still have more points they have to prove. Right, um, but, uh, you know... On the topic of the damages trend, that's the point of this uh, update. Um, mm-hmm. If they have increased market share, and if there's been ongoing violations, uh, that all leads to higher damages. So that's where you have this desire to kind of update uh, the uh, the, uh, the situation or the uh, the update the court on the success of Google. Yeah, and that's the whole point: is Oracle saying, "Hey, Android really blew up over the last five years." And guess what? They did it using our intellectual property. Yes, and now that $1 billion in damages we were talking about previously, eh, maybe we should be talking about, you know, a little more. <laughs> it's basically the pitch. Yeah, we could use a few more billion, right? Yeah, who couldn't use a few more billion? I could use a few more billion. Everyone could use a few more billion. But yeah, basically Oracle's making its argument that basically Android went from being sort of a second-tier player in the mobile operating system, which it really wasn't five years ago, but it definitely did blow up and see billions of more installs, you know, over the past five years. So, yeah, it sold a lot of freaking phones, basically, is what it comes down to. And it definitely helped cement Google's... uh, maybe Maybe I wouldn't go as far as Oracle and say dominance, but definitely tightened status in this field. I'm an Apple user, so I'm pretty... Pretty yeah. in the dark when it comes to uh, the, uh, 
the dominance of, of the Android operating system. I've been, I've been a pretty loyal customer, so I haven't quite seen the, uh, the Android evolve, at least, you know, from a personal well, mobile say, I did perspective. Buy, it's not an Android device, but I did recently uh, purchase a Pebble smartwatch. So, been on that bender lately. Did not, chose not to get an Apple watch. It was just too expensive. Got a Pebble instead. It's working great for me. Great. Gotta say, it's it's much 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 simpler um, just to dismiss notifications here. And also, I love having a, a stopwatch on my wrist now too. As, as weird as that sounds, I missed that from a kid. Stopwatches and timers. What was that? That was uh, a truck driving uh, nearby. Sorry about that. That's all right. It sounded like a, a Banta or something was about to eat you. Yeah, uh, random Star yeah. Wars jokes now. Not quite. Um, uh, although. You know, I'm sure this is very interesting to most of our listeners, but we did have a, a very strong thunderstorm, and it's been a long time since thunder's been loud enough to make me like jump out of my chair. <laughs> that happened yesterday. I think it must, must have been right over my head. And, oh, you uh, you wouldn't last five minutes in New Orleans, then, or last one day, I should say. Our three o'clock thunderstorms would probably mess with you pretty bad. Right. So, um, Oracle and Ramini. Um, is it Ramini or Ramini? I'm Rem- trying. I honestly do not know. I've never heard it pronounced. I'm I'm Canadian. I, I wouldn't trust any, any my my pronunciation. I wouldn't here. trust mine either. I'm Southern. We, neither of us have accents. I think we're out of luck. We're, we're this is the mis, this is the mispronunciation podcast until further notice. Um, but Rem- so yeah, Oracle launched its suit against uh, Rimini. I'll go with Rimini. the third option, uh, and it's uh, founder. Uh, by alleging that they had engaged in massive theft by downloading the support materials that uh, Oracle produces on its website, and then uh, it provided that you know to its own clients for a fee. Uh, mm-hmm. These materials related to a, bunch, a number of different software, including PeopleSoft, JD, JD Edwards, uh, and, and Siebel, who are all firms uh, who paid them to get this material from them, and so. Uh, that's been ongoing since 2010. Yeah. Now, in this case, Oracle did something that's kind of surprising. Typically, like what's going on in Oracle's case against Google, we hear about these companies demanding more damages and wanting the maximum under the law, $150,000 per infringement, every infringement, blah, 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 blah. Well, Oracle has backed down from some of its damage claims. Now, I'm kind of wanting your insight on this. Why would a company that seemingly has at least somewhat legitimate damage claims say, nah, you know what, we're, we're, we're curtailing what we're seeking right now. Just to, Is it just to move it along faster? And Well, sometimes you, know. you want to save face um, because credibility is very important. And if it's clear to you that your initial estimates were outrageous and you kind of stick to your guns, you may lose credibility in face of the judge. You know, in these situations, a lot of the financial requests are based on the hypothetical uh, value of a license, and uh, that value obviously has changed, and they want to make it a more realistic uh, value for, uh, per license, um, and maybe someone has uncovered how much they were actually licensing this material for, and it's much lower than what they initially uh, said they were doing. So you know, th- this, that's the type of situation in which I would expect uh, yeah. a damages request to be reduced. And it's a pretty significant reduction. They went from like two hundred and ten million to something like nine to ten million. So ninety-five percent reduction. And now, mind you, nine to ten million is still a lot of money. I would still take nine to ten million in damages right now, right? <laughs> but not saying I wouldn't take it, and not saying that isn't a significant blow to Remini Street, which is a smaller player in this, and would possibly—I don't know their financials—but you know, a lot of companies would be bankrupted by that. <laughs> Just right. the same as well, you want to make a compelling argument for what the fair market value is of your of your intellectual property, and if I go to a judge and say that you know person A stole. $100 worth of groceries and claim that it was $10,000 worth of groceries, uh, you know, I'm going to lose credibility in front of them. So it's really yeah. uh, that simple. It, uh, it reminds me of a, an old Ron White joke. He talked about his car stereo getting stolen. And he went to the insurance company and he's like, well, you know, what type of stereo wasn't? He didn't know because, you know, it's a car stereo. He, he came with the car. 
And he said, but he started, he said, well, why do you need to know? I said, well, we need to know how much money to give you. And he's like, well, Mr. White, I don't think Rolex makes a car stereo. <laughs> <laughs> so it, it's it's like that, yeah. I, I guess that's the point is you, you got to have credibility. And and this case is heading to a September trial. I mean, that sounds like a long ways off as we record this in July, but it's not. That's practically tomorrow in legal terms. That's, that's coming up quick, so they, they're, I guess they're trying to get everything in order for when they are, I guess they're, A, genuinely expecting to be in front of a jury, and B, trying to make sure they have maximum credibility when they get there. Right. Um, you know, the initial figure could have been from a uh, settlement negotiation standpoint, and now that they're going to go to trial, uh, they don't want to get, you know, blasted, or they don't want their experts to get blasted on cross-examination. Uh, when they're trying to allege just such a gigantic number and, some, and the evidence just isn't there. Um, you know, and my point about credibility in front of a judge is tenfold when it comes to credibility in front of a jury. Because if you're yeah, trying to convince a jury... We actually saw this recently. Right. If, if you're trying to convince a jury of a, an outrageous figure, then, you know, you're going to lose the whole thing. And so that's probably... Jury, we should ask Robin Thicke about this. He might know a thing or two. You give a lecture. So our next story is, has been called a, a groundbreaking and, well, well, terrible decision by most uh, copyright holders involving Philmon, who I actually thought was was dead and gone until, uh, you know, I, I read this read this story and this decision. So, um, John, you know, do you want to uh, set the foundation yeah. here? Yeah, basically, we all remember, to some degree, Aereo. Yes. That little plucky TV streaming startup that had ti- lots of tiny antennas and decided to capture over-the-air broadcast television and stream it over the internet to all the peoples who subscribed and paid like $9 a month or something like that. Pretty clever little idea. Supreme Court agreed it was clever, but also said it was a copyright infringing and shut it down. Basically, the argument was that it looked like and behaved like a cable network, therefore it was a cable network. And... You get a lot of that plain wisdom from the Supreme Court, you know, sometimes, in their judgments, the walk-like-a-duck type um, arguments. Now, the problem with that was there is a statutory license system in place where cable companies can say, hey, I'm a cable company, I wish to broadcast ABC, CBS, NBC, and all that, and here's the amount I pay the statutory license, and they have a right to do it without negotiating deals with all the individual broadcasters. Right. So normally, in order for someone to you know reproduce or perform or distribute a copyrighted work, you've got to go to the copyright owner and be like, hey, I want to do this. Let's negotiate a way in which you would let me do this. However, in a few circumstances, known as you said as compulsory licenses, a copyright owner's permission isn't required. You just have to pay whatever that license fee is, and you actually pay it to the copyright office, which is odd, but the the copyright office kind of acts as the middleman here, juggles the money, and distributes it later. I'm I'm hoping they distribute it. Maria Palente's going, ah, mine, somewhere in Washington. So, as you mentioned, one of these situations in which compulsory licenses are available is for the uh, pre-broadcast of uh, material by cable companies. So these fees are set by the government. And there's no direct negotiation. Uh, however, now, as you mentioned in the Aerial case and previously in Philmon cases, these uh, internet rebroadcast systems were not considered to be cable systems, so they weren't eligible for these licenses. Yeah. It was only the traditional cable companies, but this definition has been challenged, and it goes into uh, the definitions of what a cable system is, which is... Terribly, terribly written, in my opinion. It's very, very obtuse. Uh, I can go ahead and, and read it for the listener if they want to uh, hear yeah, what wanna, uh, the government... Uh, however, I would advise sharp objects and hard desks be avoided for the next few seconds. So a cable system is, quote, a facility located in any state territory, trust territory, or possession that in whole or in part receives signals transmitted or programmed broadcast by one or more television broadcast stations licensed by the Federal Communications Commission and makes secondary transmissions of such signals or programs by wires, cables, microwave, or other communication channels to subscribing members of the public who pay for such a service. And it actually goes on, but... I'm sorry, uh, not at all there. Um, (laughs) I heard something about microwaves. (laughs) 
You you heard correctly. <laughs> Just confusing enough, but yeah. And the basic, what was interesting after Aereo was a lot of people noted, well, it, from an infringement standpoint, Aereo and similar companies are cable companies, basically. The Supreme Court ruled they're functionally cable companies. But the flip side was they didn't qualify under this as being a cable company for the purpose of having a compulsory license. Well, now we have a, a court, a U.S. District Judge George Wu, has ruled, eh, Film On actually should be treated like a traditional cable system and should qualify for those um, statutory licenses. And basically having undone a lot of legal wisdom in the run-up in both the Film On and Aereo cases. Well, according to him, the plain language of the statute, which is always the first rule of interpretation, look what the text says. He says that it plainly includes, you know, the Film On system. And so he... Uh, it does say wires. It does. It does and wires. so he made a decision and, of course, authorized a quick interlocutory appeal, which means that this particular issue will go straight to the Second Circuit uh, because he knows the, of the importance of the ruling and a potentially large impact. Uh, and the Second Circuit, I do believe, has, did rule against Aereo in a similar case, or was it, was it yeah, the Ninth it, Circuit that ruled against I think Aereo? both actually did because Aereo... We actually had a map going when Aereo was taking place of all the states and circuits involved in it. I think Ninth and Second both actually ruled against Aereo on this issue. Yeah. So, um, yeah. Aereo so, had a long run in, in many different courts there. Um, so on, on this issue, actually, though. It was only this specific issue, though. So we um, should Aereo. see a ruling about, uh, on this issue, I think, I would say pretty quickly, and it will probably be... Uh, over overturned, and I think the judge is actually expecting his ruling to be overturned. Yeah, and you know the judge is not too confident when it's like ruling and interlocutory appeal at the same time. Usually, there's a uh, you get a ruling, then we ask for the appeal, and then we're granted it. It's like nope, same time, just go for it. <laughs> Godspeed, <laughs> take off. That that's kind of that. My experience is unusual. I don't know about yours, but for the judge to grant that at the same time he issues a ruling, I don't know if it necessarily speaks to confidence uh, entirely. But he understands probably, the importance at the very yeah, least, and that there's some likelihood that it will be overturned. Yeah, at least there's some possibility. So, yeah, it's 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 interesting and it's unusual, but. As it stands right now, at least in that district, Film On qualifies as a cable provider for the purpose of obtaining a compulsory license, which could be a boon for companies like it. Now, that being said, um, cable providers typically negotiate better deals than the compulsory license. Mm -hmm. They typically come to the provider and say, okay, this is the compulsory license, but if you want us to carry your signal, we're going to need a better deal, you know? Or we might find another provider, who another you know broadcaster that's close enough, because you know this is why a lot of like direct TV and so forth. You oftentimes get the New York channels. Sometimes it's because they got better deals. I've never, I've never had it, so I can't really speak to whether they got deals or not. In some areas, if you have um, certain satellite providers, you might sometimes get out of area um, NBC, ABC affiliates. So. so, yeah, we should uh, see this this course, this this court's decision rejected. I, I would say pretty quickly. Uh, the Second Circuit ruled against. Uh, I don't know if you remember Ivy. I don't know if I'm pronouncing. Yep, that. Ivy TV, um, yeah. and they were actually before Aereo, if I remember correctly. They right, were, they exactly. Were and the court in that decision said that continued live retransmissions of copyrighted television programming over the internet without consent threatens to destabilize the entire industry. And so when that's the policy perspective of the court, they'll usually find a way, especially where uh, interpretation of the statute is kind of the issue, they'll find a way to interpret it yeah. in a way that favors their policy. And that's that's one of the things that is always interesting about courts to me is there's kind of two ways courts reach verdicts. One is the way you would expect. They look at the law, they look at the evidence, they weigh them. And then they, you know, reach the conclusion from there. And then there are times that they kind of work backwards. They know the conclusion they won't, and they find reasons for it. That's that's true, and, and you know, it's unfortunate. 
in most it, cases, and uh, I, I think well, this is just going to be a case of that, of conclusion first, and they're going to find yeah. a way to get there just like they did in the Ivy case. Yeah. Um, and, yeah. So let's move on to my favorite story. Of yeah, the, the Twitter uh, one. Yeah, uh, yes, it's, it's both the, my uh, favorite and my least favorite in the same breath because, <sighs> you know, I, I, this one I got find blown it out very of fascinating. Um, so <laughs> Twitter is deleting uh, stolen jokes on copyright grounds using yeah. and, exactly how exactly the fashion which you would expect, which is the DMCA takedown system, which they have had for a long time. But it's yeah. normally used for embedded photos, you know, stolen arts, or links, or sometimes links to pirated materials too. They'll, they'll as a um, they'll delete those as sort of an information location tool, which is also in the DMCA too. Um, so yeah. a a I believe a young woman. She's a writer. I, I followed her recently, and then she. Yeah, what is back. her Twitter handle? Yes. I was not able to locate it. I tried briefly. It's, Maybe I had the misspelling of her last name. It was um, R-U-N-O-L-G-A-R-U-N, Runolagarin. So, okay. sorry um, about that. <laughs> yeah, no, it's just, I. oh, there it is. I see it now, Run-O, yeah, Run-Olga Run. Okay, oh, yeah. I got her now. <laughs> yeah. Well, I feel a little silly. I'm like, <laughs> Run-Olga Run? <laughs> <laughs> run Olga run yes that run would be Olga it. run that's that yeah it's, <laughs> uh, that's I cannot um, fault you for that because it, it, it when you're just looking at it without the spaces yeah it, it does indeed look exactly like you would um so yeah before the show I was tweeting about this this topic of copyright and Twitter which of course are two of my favorite things and the whole concept of short phrases and copyright so her and I had a brief brief exchange on that and I, uh, I, I don't know, did we actually get into the fundamentals of this? Is that she, this, this woman, tweeted a joke, which was something about uh, whenever she sees, she, uh, paraphrasing The exact here. joke, and I'll, I can read it. Sure. Um, saw someone spill their high-end juice cleanse all over the sidewalk, and now she knows God is on her side, is basically <laughs> the joke. It's, That's not uh, the exact verbiage for yeah. some reasons, but that's the joke. <laughs> Right, so uh, she saw that four or five people stole her tweet verbatim, so she searched her tweet. Yeah, and, and these that. were not retweets or modified tweets or anything like that. It's just verbatim, copy pasta, new tweet. Exactly. So she she went through the through Twitter's DMCA takedown system, and they took down the tweets, and this became a huge story. Obviously, someone reported it to, to the news, thinking that this wasn't right for, for one reason or another. And it's uh, the story is blowing up right now. Buzzfeed, yeah, everyone's now, talking about it. And, and, and go ahead. And one thing to make clear is this is not a new Twitter policy per se. No. This is not Twitter deciding. You know what? We don't like plagiarized jokes. We're gonna sick a bot on them or something to take them down. That's not what's happening. As you pointed out, this was all done through the DMCA, which has been around for longer than Twitter. And right. And is, yeah. I'm sure text tweets have been deleted before Absolutely. Uh, through the system. It just hasn't gotten traction uh, in the media. But it definitely got me thinking about short phrases and Twitter and copyright. Now, short phrases are generally not copyrightable. Uh, if a short phrase is granted copyright, it's usually an extremely thin copyright, which means that you really have to copy it verbatim. In order for there to be uh, a violation of uh, or a reproduction uh, violation, um, now the rule behind short phrases and copyright and a lack of copyright is basically based on two different tenets of copyright law. The first being that you know copyright just doesn't protect an idea, and the shorter the phrase, the more likely it is that it's not the expression of an idea or a particular expression. It's just the idea. The expression-idea dichotomy of copyright. The exactly. Wonderful pontification that gets so many dissertations in law school and in, in, in various colleges dealing with these right. issues. And, you know, secondly is that, of course, uh, you require a sufficient amount of creativity for something to be copyrighted, and some short phrases just aren't creative enough. Yeah. There's nothing creative about them. And, um, so I went... And looked through uh, a few cases I thought were 
interesting uh, maybe to give the listener on some perspective on what phrases are considered copyrightable or not. Uh, there's a case, Narrow versus Freeman, in 89, in which two books uh, were compared. Um, obviously, one author thought that another author took too much from him, and uh, there were eight phrases uh, that were taken exactly, other than, of course, a general inspiration. The two books were on the same topic, including the phrases, quote, um, um, a horse of gold seekers, I don't know what that means, but, unquote, the river uh, wound its way between muddy banks crawling with alligators. And so, even though these phrases were taken exactly, there was found to be no uh, yeah. no copyright infringement because these phrases were not sufficiently creative to even know copyright. Um, now, phrases that were shorter than that, however, have been found to be infringements if they conjured up the image of a character. So, for example... A T-shirt that said "ET Phone Home" uh, was found to be uh, an infringement of copyright, which, in my opinion, seemed off because it was really seemed like copyright law trying to do the work of trademark law. Maybe. Yeah, that seems more like a trademark to me too. I was yeah, just thinking it, that as you said it. I didn't think it, of that one. That there's your uh, your example of a court finding a conclusion first and then you know making its way to it. Um, yeah. And then I just thought, after that, I just thought of my favorite short phrases. And so I'm going to give them to you one by one, John, and you're going to tell me whether you think they are oh, okay. uh, entitled to copyright. And this isn't, you know, there's no yes or no answer here. Um, Obviously, no right or wrong, just type this spitballing here. Okay, here we go. Here's the first one. You ready? Okay. And I'm going to, I'm going to give my best, my best delivery here Bond. James Bond. Seems like trademark to me. <laughs> Well, I mean, tra- it has to trademark Well, then again, is... but then again, it's the character name, too. I can see both sides of that one, because you are discussing a specific character, and the character is copyrightable. We've seen that many times over. Right, we're not we're not saying that these, these items are on a t-shirt. Like, in that ET phone yeah. home, home case, okay. I definitely thought it was really doing the work well, yeah, of trademark, okay. because you're getting actual physical product. Let's okay, just... and I would say, uh, I would say, and I think this is going to come up in a lot, uh, that possibly is copyrightable. But okay. most uses are probably going to qualify as a fair use too, because of course, uh, you know. Yeah, then you run into that whole issue. Parody. So that's a separate ball of wax. So you're right. right. It, you know, um, we'll get to like, even if there is copyright in the short phrase, what's the real implication of that? And in, in yeah. which the answer, you know, spoiler alert, is generally not much because there's so many different steps that would have to be, um, so many different hurdles that have to be overcome in order to actually stop someone from using them. Um, but uh, let me go on. So what about this one? Go ahead. Make my day. Hmm. Copyright. Uh, you know, I'm almost certain there is prior art of that one. <laughs> but <laughs> well, prior art is a patent term, but I think what you're alluding to is well, you know that... What, you know what I mean. I know, this, is but, very ba- this is a very basic... Yeah, but statement, I, right? It was made famous, but there's nothing inherently No, there's about nothing it. inherently copyrightable about it either. There's nothing, you know, directly connect, you know what I mean? Yeah, so uh I I I I, I, I that and I'm almost 100% sure that phrase existed well before Dirty Harry. It just made, it was made popular by Clint Eastwood's specific delivery of it. I think your instincts are in the, the right place here. Uh, you know, we have to kind of distinguish between the actual creativity of the short phrase and yeah. its fame. The, um, the te- looking at the text alone, if like just written out, no, I don't think it's copyrightable. But obviously, the clip of Clint Eastwood saying it with the pointing the gun—that's definitely getting there, you know. Of course, well, uh, you know, a clip and that's you know, an audio and, visual. And that work, I think which is where is the whole... creativity came from, and that one was the delivery, not necessarily the phrase itself. Okay, uh, here's number three. Toto, I don't think we're in Kansas anymore. I, once again, I think it's a delivery thing, not necessarily a um, a uh, the text on text on paper thing. I, I, I see. I, I see a distinction here because you know if you have got you know, personal names, the names of a city. Um, I think maybe this this yeah. goes towards copyrightability uh, for it, it me. Def- it definitely is more so than the Dirty Harry quote. I would push it more toward that way than Dirty Harry. I'm still not quite ready to call that copyrightable by itself, but yeah, it's once again a situation where the delivery makes a lot of difference in that. 
Yeah, I think that'll be the same for these last two, and I could skip them. But uh, okay, but know, what are they? Uh, I'll, I'll make them an offer you can't refuse. Yeah, and of course, uh, my favorite. You talking to me? That one definitely is all delivery. Yeah, you talking to delivery. me cannot be copyrighted, but the delivery <laughs> on it is so, definitely obviously iconic there. And you know that. So we talk, but here I'm gonna I'll throw something counter to you. Um. We talked all about famous short phrases, um, but you could fit theoretically an entire haiku poem in a tweet. And obviously, we, haiku have been held up as being copyrightable in the past. Yeah, I think. Uh, well, first of all, haiku is at least more than one phrase. You yes. At least what three phrases sure. in a haiku? Mm-hmm. Uh, so, it's, so it's you're... three phrases. Typically, three phrases. Now, the seven five um, seven five seven thing is kind of an urban legend, but. You know, yeah, it's, it's a specific number of syllables, short, but it is definitely three phrases. So yeah, I think I think a poem is copyrightable. You know, if it's a terrible haiku that really isn't very creative, then then um, no. well, first of all, no one's going to steal it. But second of all, uh, the the copyright will be so thin and uh, and likely only stopping other people from using exactly your poem. Um, but, you know, this goes into the, the, the last point I want to make about this is that, you know, even if a short phrase is borrowed and used in another work, is stolen, uh, you know, thrown into another work, there's so many hurdles here. You know, first of all, you know, the, the chance that copyright doesn't even protect the phrase or, or, short, or small amount of phrases that you've written. Then, even if it is copyrighted, the borrowing is, like, too small, what we know as de minimis. Uh, you know, the law doesn't like to concern itself with trifles. To even matter, and even if that's not the case, uh, the two works may not be substantially similar. Uh, and then, even if they are substantially similar, you know, the borrowing could be excused by either fair use or parody, etc. So exactly, and you know, and the thing about this story, getting back to the original story, that was so frustrating for me is there is a lot of very interesting questions here that we've been going over. And it seemed like when people were talking about it, people was talking more about this idea of Twitter clamping down on stolen jokes, which is totally not the A, what's going on, and B, not the interesting part of this. It's, it, the story went this way, the actual facts of the case, and the interesting part went this way, you know? Yeah, that, that is not surprising to me. <laughs> it is not. And I kind of blame... I don't know if I like the story here we have on the verge. I don't know if I. I think the article is pretty well written, but I think the headline kind of led people astray with what was going on, either intentionally or unintentionally, because it made it sound like Twitter was the one taking all this action when it was actually a DMCA notice from this freelance author. That it was is causing. not. It is not a uh, new policy. No. And that's just it. It's not like Twitter woke up and decided, you know, we don't like plagiarized jokes. We're just going to kill them all. And no, that's not what happened. This was a freelance author took down a handful of, not really that many, but a handful of tweets that had plagiarized her joke. And that's the end of it, you know. It's interesting for a lot of hypotheticals. And as far as her joke, you know, I think... Using the exact joke, certainly the exact verbiage, exact you know, everything, is definitely pushing some copyright. It is definitely not. You know, it is definitely probably. I would say is almost certainly a copyright infringement. That's what I'm trying to say. But I could probably take that joke, rewrite it a million ways, and be perfectly and fine. Be absolutely fine. Exactly. It is super duper easy to rewrite that joke and retell it in a hundred different ways, and not be copyright infringing. You might still be a jerk who's a joke stealer, but you're not a copyright infringer, you know? Yes. I'm not saying you're ethically okay, just legally okay, probably. It becomes closer to plagiarism than copyright. Exactly. At that point, you're dealing more with the ethical issues of plagiarism rather than the legal issues of copyright infringement. And this Very well said. Is, you know, plagiarism today, yes, I deal with those issues, but now you're getting into a whole... When it comes with plagiarism and jokes, I try to hide as much as I can because it, it's not easy to, to hash all that out. Especially when you get, like, Carlos Mencia-type controversies going on. Yeah, so, so John, we spoke quite a bit about the Marvin Gaye case over the past yeah. few episodes, and we both... Stated, or we agreed with the, the notion that this wasn't really a real big impact case. 
uh, et cetera, et cetera. It was really more of a case of legal strategy. But maybe one of the things we overlooked was that, you know, when we were discussing about impact, we were really maybe theorizing about legal, legal impact. Yeah. And when it comes to real-world impact, it's probably quite... Uh, Quite significant, and that brings us yeah. to the next story here well, about yeah. the writing credit. Yeah, we, we 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 overlooked, I guess, the psychological impact, the fear that this would put into some people, and yeah, and it seems to have happened to um, R and B. They call him a crooner in this article. Every, there's no one that's just a musician or a singer. They're a crooner or a balladeer, or you know what I mean. We've got to fancify well, already a very fancy job title, but anyways. Musician Miguel, Miguel. Hmm. Miguel's song um, sounds a lot. Uh, his, his song uh, "Leaves" sounds a lot like the Smashing Pumpkins, 1979. And so he wrote the song, and he stated, "You know, see, it kind of did remind me of 1979. Yeah, I was did. a fan of them growing up, and I bought their albums, which is kind of reminding me of what, exactly what you know Thick said without it." Without saying the words, yeah, it sounded like it. He, he, instead of that, he said, inspired by them. Yeah. And so, um, for him, he heard the similarity. It sank in, and this was all during the fiasco of the Marvin Gaye trial. And so he said, you know what? I'm going to give up some potential profit of this song. I'm going to call up the authors of the song and you know, ask them. I'm going to go, hey releasing this, this song and I think it may sound a little bit too much like your song you would definitely want to make big inspirations listen to it do you want to write it yeah and that's and, exactly what happened yeah, yeah and we've seen other cases like this where musicians have released songs or been preparing to release songs and then kind of said at the last second you know wait a minute um, maybe we should uh, you know call in, you know, so-and-so and give him a writing credit or, you know, make sure he's cool with it. And, you know, honestly, I don't know enough about Billy Corgan's reputation to know if he's a cool guy or if he's the type of guy that would, you know, pound his chest over this. I, I really just don't know. Um, well, one of the... He didn't want to One of the risk. more unexpected things uh, is what if someone passes and... All of a sudden, it's yeah, you know, the heirs who. And we, and we see this income. time and time again where heirs take a very different slant on the music than the original musician did. Like Ray Charles' heirs, notoriously being very, very different with licensing his music and what he did in his life. So, yeah, we see that all the time. And I just noted that Marvin Gaye estate. Would Marvin Gaye have himself have targeted Robin Thicke? Probably not. You know, that doesn't sound like a very Marvin Gaye thing. No, it does not. <laughs> it just does not. But his his estate did, and that's how we got the lawsuit. So, yeah, it, it, it's interesting, and I think you're right. I think the greatest impact of this might not be a legal one. I don't think we're going to see another case like it, but we might be seeing more situations like this where people just aren't taking the chance, you know? So and I don't know. Maybe I think that may be the lasting impact of blurred lines, rather than a legal sort of heritage. Um, that brings us to our favorite person, Kim. dot com. You know, the guy that constantly screws up AP style by having the last name dot com and making it so difficult to write articles about him. Dot com says, Ugh, it "Just sounds wrong." I think it's he did that on purpose. Odd. But yes, he um he has lost a fairly um important decision at least in his eyes as a court of a an appeals court in New Zealand has ordered the attorney general to in turn order the uh, um devices and other information seized from kim.com to be turned over to US authorities. That's a pretty weird chain. It's a pretty lengthy chain there. Yeah, very <laughs> Very interesting. We're just, ordering just you to order. So Could you imagine if a restaurant worked this way? Yeah, it'd be very difficult. Um, actually, it kind of does work that way. Actually, you does. Order yeah. the, Wait a minute. The I'm just talking about it. The, does. the chef. You tell the waiter to in turn tell the chef to 
Yeah, it's exactly like that. But yeah, basically, when Kim.com's assets were seized in January 2012, along with you know his site Mega Upload being shuttered, um, a bunch of data and a bunch of stuff was seized and not turned over to U.S. authorities. The actual criminal prosecution is taking place in the U.S. and he is fighting extradition from his home in New Zealand to the United States. Now, the U.S. authorities already had a lot of data seized because Mega Upload servers were in the U.S. because reasons. Um, you know, <laughs> I don't fully understand his decisions to host so much in the United States. He, a lot of this action should have been pretty predictable. But I digress. Um... He did, and so there was a lot of information already in the U.S., but there was also stuff seized from his house, um, personal servers and personal computers, that has been kind of in limbo, not able to really be turned over directly to U.S. authorities. Well, now, you know, the appeals court is ordering at least, you know, um, the bulk of that data to be turned over. So, and that will greatly help. It's, uh, the U.S. government seems to think that will greatly help them build their case against Kim.com and further the cause of getting him extradited to the U.S. and convicting him in a criminal court, ultimately convicting him in a criminal court here. And right now, the um, next uh, extradition hearing is scheduled, I think, for like October, sometime this fall. Is that? I don't mm -hmm. remember when exactly it is, but it's already being rumored to be postponed yet again for those playing along at home. It will probably have been over four years between his arrest before there's ever an extradition hearing to even consider the possibility of extraditing him to the U.S. Wheels of international justice turn extremely slowly. Very, very slowly. Oh, especially when you know everyone's fighting tooth and nail in different jurisdictions. Yeah. So, like and you said, someone has... has to tell the waiter to tell the chef to, to make it, and then yeah. uh, that you get that kind of a train. Exactly. And that brings us to our last story, which is that ripping CDs and movies for personal use is now, or once again, illegal in the UK. Yeah, and we have something kind of similar to this in the United States, but it still surprised a lot of people when this happened in the UK. Um, in the US, we have this idea that laws must be constitutional. <laughs> that it must abide <laughs> by the Constitution. Yes. We hope, right? That's the idea. Yes. And that courts can rule laws to be unconstitutional. Well, courts in the UK can, in turn, rule that laws were improperly considered or passed improperly and for various reasons. And a recent law which made it legal in the UK, which it seems very silly to me because no one has ever actually been prosecuted or sued for ripping a CD in the UK. Right, and the law was specifically uh, written so that the individual has to have... First of all, they have to have lawfully acquired the content yes. and then doesn't distribute it to anyone else. And, you know, if you buy something and you reproduce it uh, just to watch it on your computer, you're fine. I, I, so yeah. No one's ever going to find no one, out. You <laughs> know? No, well, first of all, no one's uh, going to find out. But, you know, we're going back to the uh, initial concept of... Uh, of uh, time shifting, where you know if you were going to watch something yeah. on TV well, and record yeah, it on the VHS, US, that wasn't that, a yeah. copyright infringement. I misheard you. Yeah, in the U.S., we have time shifting and you know, format shifting and these rules which let you do that. Right. If you put a CD in your Mac and iTunes opens up and starts ripping it to your iTunes library, you're okay. You don't have to panic. You're not breaking any laws. But unless you're in the U.K., which apparently, at least technically, you are. But like I said, no one in the UK has actually been prosecuted or sued for this. But it's one of those things that was on the book. But yet, when the law was passed enabling that, making it formally legally legal, various rights holders challenged it, in particular UK Music, saying that the um, Parliament should have implemented rules which would have ensured rights holders were compensated uh, for this infringement of their work. Basically what we would think of in the US as a levy on the CDs, mostly, on the, on the media. Yeah, that seems like the only way they would ever get any financial yeah, exactly. any financial reward out of this is you know, you know a two cent tax on every blank CD that's uh, that's sold. And I'm surprised there isn't already something like yeah, that. There, like I'm, there, I'm, there almost certainly is. I, uh, I, I'm not aware of there being one, but almost certainly there has to be something, right? Right, and because otherwise, there's really no way for them to ever enforce uh, yeah. you know, this right because 
Because you know, like you said, there's no way for you to be caught if you're, you know, burning something and you're using it for personal use. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Who's going to find out? Yeah. I mean, and this is one of the reasons why in the U.S. you have CDRs, for a time at least, it doesn't seem to be so common now, you had CDRs that were sold for music and for data. Remember that? Right. That was solely because of levies. And I think they extended it so that it was all CDRs or something like that. It doesn't seem like they're labeled that way now, but they were the exact blank CDs. You could take a data CD and burn music to and vice versa. But they were labeled for purposes. So it impacted um, the, the levies that were applied to them. Well, at least that was my understanding of it. I may have gotten bad information on that one. But it, it's it's bizarre and frankly I think it's all kind of you know silly because like I said there, no one's ever been prosecuted for it. And unless they do institute a levy system, there's no way to compensate rights holders. And we've seen firsthand in the U.S. how imperfect the levy system is when implemented. Right. Um, I'm with you. I'm on the same page. Seems silly. Uh, maybe there's another step that we're missing here, but yeah, reading yeah, the story. I, 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 don't, I don't understand surprised. why this was worth fighting, but there you go. It was, and they, they won. And basically what happened is... The court ruled against it, and apparently there's like a 30-day period after the court does that where Parliament can make amendments or changes and fix the law, and Parliament just did nothing, and the time lapsed. Well, now the law's gone. That's <laughs> what happens. It's basically the court saying, hey, it's a pretty law you got here. It'd be a shame if something happened to it. <laughs> you know, like it got ruled null and void. It'd be a terrible <laughs> thing. So you make these changes or... No, well, speaking of short phrases that are probably copyrightable. There you go. There you go. What is that from? I don't remember. <laughs> a pretty blank. It'd be a shame if something happened to it. It's got a, I'm pretty sure that's that. It would be... Hang on something. a second. I'm going to see if I can find out while, we're, while I've got two seconds here. It would be a shame if something uh, happened to it. Okay, uh, know your meme uh, claims it is. Oh come on, it is. Um. Okay, know your meme uh, has the history of the meme, but not necessarily what movie. It had to come from a movie, right? Hmm. It's, Could it, it possibly be just a popular meme, trope, meme. stock yeah, phrase? A popular trope, and now it, it, that became a meme. It could be. I don't know. If anyone knows, please let us know, because now it will, you know, be absolute. Oh, okay. Hang on a second. TV tropes. Save me, TV tropes. This, this was um. This I'm actually on the oh. TV tropes uh, page right now, and they seem to think it's a. You know, a stock phrase that's used by the mafia, and and you know this is we've actually happened on a, a very interesting case uh, study of short phrases and copyright, yeah, and, and how and, some of know, them are and, really just common and, stock phrases that are not eligible for copyright, that are that are just not creative enough, and just kind of represent a very simple uh, idea, right? There's. And I find it super amusing. The cited example of it is from Star Trek: Deep Space Nine on TV tropes. This is like that. It's like the last place I expected them to cite that phrase from, and it's it's slightly, obviously, slightly modified for Star Trek purposes. But it's it's the spirit of the phrase, I guess. <laughs> All right, John. Well, it was a pleasure talking again this yeah. these past two weeks. Um, hopefully, yeah. we'll have um, some more. Interesting stories. Oh yeah. Well, we've already got one that you know didn't make it this week. Um, you know, we've already got the update to the happy birthday case that I was we were unable to get in because no, we do I look the forward show to reading that. Huh? I look forward to reading. Yeah, that. we'll be talking about that one next week. I'm sure. Lots going on there. But in the meantime, once again, my name is Jonathan Bailey from the site Plagiarism Today, which is plagiarismday.com, and username plagiarismday to all the places. And Evan, you are. You find me at Evan Sheris on Twitter, and which is normally actually down here, but I think I forgot to. Yeah, uh, I, I I forgot to, when I my computer my my browser crashed before uh, we did this, and I forgot to re mention it or say anything. Yeah, yeah it's all right. No, don't worry about Anyways, it. Anyways, at Evan Sheris, uh, and uh, you know, shoot me an email, uh, eshares at gmail.com. and uh, we will, uh, as John likes to say, 
See you guys next week. We'll be back on... I think all travel is done now, so we will be back next week and hopefully back on track with the weekly podcast soon. Take care. Talk to you soon. Take care. We would like to give a very special thank you to Pit X for contributing the Copyright 2.0 show theme song entitled Me Boo. It is available under the Creative Commons by Attribution License and can be found at ccmixter.org by searching for the word Me Boo. Thank you very much, Pit X. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.